From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Thank you, Mark Wolf. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio, where the finest mind in the strength and conditioning industry tells you things that you don't already know, and where you will disagree with them on YouTube. It's uh, it's an odd situation we find ourselves in here. Uh, but, for example, hate mail. What do we call this section? Comments from the haters. Comments, Comments from, from the, the haters. haters. New regular feature here on Starting Strength Radio. Comments from the haters. Uh, this is, these are really good. Where, where do you get these? This is all Facebook stuff? No, it's all YouTube. It's all YouTube stuff. Oh. It's from the three percenters on YouTube. All right, Zoran Matic. Zoran Matic. It's like a vacuum cleaner or something, right? Zoran Matic says, this is in relation to the, my comments about veganism and the human diet. Started Wraith radio clip that was aired some time ago. Plant proteins are incomplete. He's got that in quotation marks. Plants are insufficient to build strength. That's also in quotation marks. The largest and strongest land animals are all herbivores, gorilla, elephant, rhino, buffalo, horse, etc. Where do you think they get their complete protein? You think they have to carefully plan their diet and combine rice with beans? Plants are insufficient to build muscle and strength. Oh, so gorilla or elephant is apparently weaker than you, XD, ba-ha-ha-ha. Can you catch and kill any prey in nature barehanded and eat it? Like a lion, if you're not a natural predator and eating meat is not your natural diet. (laughs) These people are interesting. (laughs) He goes on. Would you eat your dog? (laughs) Why not? You're a predator. What is the difference between a dog and a cow. Don't be a pussy. Do you have a psychological disorder? (laughs) Oh, man, I'm glad you came up with this. This is just so much fun. Kill a cow without using tools and weapons and without dehorning it first. (laughs) Because they all have horns, you know. Let me see what predator you are. Bah, ha, ha, ha. Make a video and post it on YouTube. Saying you're a natural predator. I'm sorry, this is not in caps. Saying you're a natural predator with using tools and weapons is the same as me claiming, me clamming, I'm a natural bird because I can fly in a plane. This is some insightful shit. I'm telling you, this guy's got it figured out. All right, here's the next one. This is from Aw Shucks Motherfucker. Instant credibility with that username, right? L-M-F-A-O, laughing my fucking ass off, I guess is what that means. How could this guy come up with more material about the fucking squad and deadlift? Why is there a podcast dedicated to how great they are? Still hilarious, though. And uh, let's see. Zazen69 says, I wonder how often the engineers from Prometheus revisit the barbell role. <laughs> That's genuinely funny, isn't it? 
Uh, and then Tay Hillbilly says one day ago, he says, worst barbell row form ever. And Isaiah follows up with, this doesn't look right to me. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, God. This is, I love this one. Rip compresses the most words into the smallest idea more than anyone I've ever heard or read. You know, you're absolutely right. And I speak very slowly, too. You may have noticed that. I'm like the opposite of Ben Shapiro. Don't you think? Oh, God, this is still my favorite one. I have to read this every week. This is so goddamn funny. Not, or no fap gamer G says, what? <laughs> says, why are Mark's nipples hard? Is he some kind of pervert? <laughs> God damn it. Uh, that is, that's astonishing. It really is. So anyway, that is, uh, what are we calling it? Comments from the the haters. haters. All right. Now, what we're going to do this week is continue our popular series of the uh, Q&A, Rip's Q&A. And these are are gleaned from uh, your responses to our request for comments for this show on the Speak Up channel, and that is located on the Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question for the Q&A, you go to my Mark Ripito Q&A, and there will be a thread that uh, our production assistant, Bree Hillen, puts up that will uh, direct you to a speak up link in order to place these. And and what happens is, is you place your comments there and other people vote on the veracity of those comments. And if they're just abject stupidity, everybody hates them and we don't read them. And uh, if they are pretty good questions, we'll include them in the, in the, uh, in the show as we're doing right now. Now, This is fundamentally different from the old Ask Rip series in which we intentionally read the most absolute stupid shit we could find and just for fun. But there are serious questions addressed in this iteration of the the Q&A. So let's get started, shall we? Dad Bod is, as Dad Bod does, suggests the following. My wife is four months postpartum. She went through an emergency C-section. She had no diastasis recti. Her doctors only give general advice, such as work back into exercise slowly. How would you coach an average woman after pregnancy? Well, uh, Dad, there are no average women after pregnancy. Everybody has their own little problems. Now, most of them follow along with a general pattern of human postpartum healing and most women are capable of getting back into a program very quickly. But this question is exquisitely dependent on training history. If your wife had been training for any length of time prior to delivery, then she will be back in the gym within a week after giving birth. And uh, I've seen this happen many times. Um, Women that go into a pregnancy and come out of delivery with a training history. In other words, women that have trained all the way through pregnancy have, in general, much shorter labor and much, much more rapid return to training, much more rapid return to all levels of function after delivery than women who were sedentary all the way through the process and who have decided that they need to get back in shape from, you know, like a long time ago after they uh, give birth. Uh, so 
if uh, if your wife had not been training prior to pregnancy, had no training history during pregnancy, she's going to need to wait, you know, a few weeks to where she, you know, feels like doing something to to get this uh, starting back an exercise program accomplished. What you'll find, though, is that had she gone into uh, pregnancy training, had she gone all the way through the pregnancy in the gym, that she already knows when she's going to go back. She already knows the numbers she's going to do the first day she goes back. She's going to squat, press, bench press, and deadlift within a week of giving birth. Now, she won't be back as heavy as she was during weeks, during month seven. But I've seen women PR in the ninth month. I've seen women PR the squat nine months into a pregnancy. Uh, pregnancy is not a disease process. It is human reproduction, and somehow the species has adapted quite handsomely to this this process over the you know millions of years that we animals have been birthing other uh, little bitty baby animals through this process. So, you know, and if you'll think about it, in a primitive society. Did women have the luxury of laying around on their ass for three weeks after they get through, after they got through giving birth? Well, no, they did not, did they? And uh, our genetics are still those genetics, and there's no reason for you to lay around on your ass for weeks after you give birth, unless you just want to. Now, that having been said, I've talked often about pregnancy in the gym, all right? If I've got... Uh, a woman that's been training with me for any length of time that shows up and says, you know, I'm pregnant now, and I think I'm about a, a month, month and a half into the process. What do you want me to do? I would tell her in the presence of a training history, and so just keep training. You know, just keep training like you've been doing. Keep adding weight to the bar in the same process that you have been uh, adding it previously. When it comes time, to make some changes, you will know, and we will work with it then. But for the time being, you're, nothing is different. You just keep training, all right? And if she's been training with me in the gym for any length of time, I know her. She knows me. She's confident we're not going to do anything to her to get her hurt. Uh, however, if a woman that I don't know comes into the gym and says, you know, I've heard that uh, training makes uh, the process of labor and delivery quite a bit easier and that training is good for the fetus. And, it's, you know, I would think I'd like to start participating in that, in that process. Uh, I'm pregnant. I'm about a month pregnant. Just, just received word, and I think I want to start training. I'm going to say, I'm sorry, we'll have to wait till after you deliver. And we'll be glad to help you then. And uh, I'm going to run her off. I'm going to get her out of the gym. I'm not going to start her. And the reason I'm not going to start her is because of liability issues. It has been estimated that somewhere between 30 and 50% of all conceptions end in spontaneous abortion, in miscarriage. 30 and 50% is a big number. That is a lot of miscarriages. And if I let somebody that I don't know start training in the gym, and two weeks after she starts training in the gym, she miscarries, and I'm, my program in the gym is, is the variable that has changed. I don't want to hear from her attorney. And this is horrible. Uh, we all know that it would be better if she trained. But the liability for me is too great. I'm sorry about that, but I've got my own business to consider. If you take the odds that are one-third to one-half that she is going to miscarry 
during the process, not necessarily in the gym, but during the process of starting to train with me, who's going to get the blame for that? Well, you know, depending on how her attorney responds, it could very well be me, and I'm not going to sit here and let that happen because it's not it's not a practical thing to. Since I know that the odds of this, I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in that in that kind of a gamble. Now, if I know her, I know her. She's been training with me a couple of years, and she knows about training. She also, I'm going to make sure that she knows about the risks of miscarriage, just throughout the general population, as a result of uh, just normal human reproductive variability. I'll make sure she knows that. And if she wants to keep training, it's her decision. Uh, are the odds that are, are the odds still constant? Do the odds remain that she has got a 30 to 50% chance of miscarriage? I don't know. I don't know how a training history affects those odds. It may well, it may well be that a training history mitigates some of that, depending on how much of the miscarriage risk is uh, a result of the fact that she's actually not in the best physical condition she could be. I don't know. But if she's been training with me in the gym for any length of time, I'm going to let her make that decision. And I want to make sure she's informed about it. I am not worried about her uh, doing this because she's going to be the one that makes that decision, not me. But if I let someone I don't know start to train in the gym, uh, I am taking on quite a bit of risk, and I'm not interested in doing that. So uh, the, the, I, I'm, I'm just not, not interested in having that happen as a result of possibly something I've done or possibly just the odds. So that's going to be what happens there. But if... Uh, a girl that's been training with me for a long time gives birth. I'll expect to see her back in the gym in a week, unless there were problems with the delivery. If there were, if it was a C-section situation, uh, which is what the what what the question is uh, here, that's going to slow the process down quite a bit because that's a big incision across the abdominal muscles. I'll have to be very careful with her, but. What I will not let her do is sit-ups anytime soon. I would, I've had abdominal surgery a couple of times, and I understand how painful that is. And it's going to take a couple of weeks before you feel like doing anything. I'll put a belt on her and let her squat and press and bench press and probably deadlift. Oh, you know, three weeks post-op. In a situation like that, if she had a normal vaginal delivery, though, she's back in the gym that week. Absolutely. So my my recommendation uh, for a woman with a C-section would be the same thing I that would that I would have for a woman who'd had any other invasive abdominal procedure done. We're going to wait till things start to heal up, and then we're not going to sit up. We're just going to do squats and deadlifts. And I hope that addresses that thoroughly. All right. Ryan Vincenti asks, can you single out, and he puts that in quotes, the first muscle activated by the brain on the ascent of the squat? Of course, it would be your hip drive, but is there a single muscle that actually fires first? Ryan, in a squat, there is never a single muscle doing anything at any time. There's no single muscle doing anything first or a single muscle doing anything last. All of the muscles that drive up out of the bottom are the same muscles that have been working eccentrically on the way down into the bottom of the muscle of the of the range of motion. So there's not a muscle to turn on first because none of them are relaxed. Uh, I I spend some time thinking about this. Stop listening to physical therapists. Stop listening to thing people that tell you that muscles fire first because that's all bullshit. Okay, it's bullshit. Right now, here is uh, someone who says, you seem to have a keen understanding 
of neurological decay. As you've stated, you learned the trumpet, among other reasons, to learn something new and to keep building new synapses. I don't remember saying anything about building synapses. Uh, No, I don't think I said that. You are also interested in Alzheimer's, but nothing in your family. Because I am surrounded by my parents' bad neurology. I think your attitude's commendable. Is dementia prevention the new cancer prevention? Well, that is an interesting question. There's not been any any patent Alzheimer's in my family. My dad kind of slowly lost his shit over the past over the six months prior to his death. But I wouldn't consider that to be Alzheimer's. He wasn't sharp at the age of eighty three when he died, like he was when he was sixty three. Uh, but I think that is as much a function of retirement as anything else. Uh, I'm anti-retirement. I think you take a productive guy that's been thinking real hard every day for 40 or 50 years of his life and then take him out of his job situation, take him away from a position of responsibility and sit him down on the couch. I think, that has profoundly detrimental uh, results to his brain. I, I don't know if you can call that Alzheimer's, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm interested in Alzheimer's, but not to the extent that I'm terribly familiar with the mechanics of the pathology. Uh, and I am interested enough in it to understand that there has been uh, some development in terms of the the, the thinking on the etiology of the disease. So I don't, I don't know, but I do know that it does seem to be very strongly associated with, with overconsumption of carbohydrates, absence of physical activity that would moderate, uh, glycogen metabolism. And as a result, I'm pretty thoroughly convinced that, uh, strength training probably has a beneficial effect on, a person who might be predisposed to develop Alzheimer's disease. These are just opinions I've developed over time as I've watched through the process of people aging in my gym. Uh, If that's correct, uh, strength training is a, a gigantic factor in mitigating uh, dementias that are related to glycolytic metabolism. I have heard Alzheimer's referred to, uh, perhaps a little prematurely, as type 3 diabetes. And uh, I think that it's beginning to be fairly widely recognized that there is some association with Alzheimer's and uh, glycolytic metabolism glycogen metabolism. What that association is, I don't know, and I don't know what the current state of the literature is on it. But uh, do I think old people need to lift weights? Yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. Okay, a fellow Texan asks, am, uh, no, I am, I am thinking about opening a small gym and need a work truck. And there's no comma in between gym and need a work truck. I because you open a gym does not mean that you need a work truck. I don't understand. That seems a non sequitur to me. Do you prefer Ford or Chevy? What do you use for WFAC? Well, I don't use a truck for the gym. I don't haul my weights around and go to people's houses, so I'm not hauling weights around for the gym. Now, what kind of truck do I have? I have two Dodges. All right. And I'll be the first to tell you that a Dodge truck is a piece of junk, all right? It's a large rolling disaster area, all right? The only thing on a Dodge truck that's worth a damn is the chassis and the drivetrain. And I've got two, I have an 04 and an 05, three-quarter ton Dodge, four-door, long, wide bed, three-quarter ton truck with a standard transmission. 
these trucks are getting very difficult to find. I don't own anything with an automatic transmission. I just don't have a, I have a preference for a manual transmission. And those of you that have these trucks know what I'm talking about. I, you know, I think that, uh, an automatic transmission is fine for a housewife, but I'm not a housewife and I need an actual functioning transmission in my truck that doesn't cost $20,000 to replace. So every car I've got has a clutch and, uh, those things are real hard to find anymore. Uh, there aren't making many more of them. Uh, I have put up with a lot of mechanical problems with my Dodge trucks. It's, it's, they're, they have the five, nine Cummins that everybody worships and I've had nothing but trouble with these two trucks. But, uh, it, I, it, in fact, I had the, the Oh five engine rebuilt about 105,000 miles ago. And I got home last week and there was a top of a head bolt laying on my carport floor. It just sheared off. You know, this is due to an incompetent assembly. Someone over torqued the hell out of those head bolts and three of them were sheared off. So I had to have studs installed in the block and it was a big giant mess. You know, $3,100 later, they had to pull the cab off the truck. They had to pick the cab. It was easier to take the cab off of that truck than it was to pull the engine, which I found fascinating. So it's an expensive repair, but I've got Dodges. I have them because of the 5.9. I realized that was a bullshit recommendation, but at this point I am hip deep in both of these trucks. I cannot find a three-quarter ton, four-door, long-wide bed truck with a stick shift in it for less than hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm just going to keep the ones I've got. That two-wheel drive 05 Dodge truck runs down the highway. Oh, God, it's nicer on the highway than a Cadillac. It's a fabulous highway vehicle. And uh, it's a pleasure to drive on the highway. Uh, The four-wheel drive the 04 four-wheel drive I need for up in the high country where where we stay some of the time. So I, I have to have both these trucks. But Dodges or, or, or Fords or Chevys are not in the, in the current recipe. Okay. Shadow 3088 says, If you wouldn't have pioneered the novice effect or had concepts in practical programming to guide your training, what other existing program, colon, would be the lesser of evils and why? Well, let me clear up a misunderstanding. When I was lifting competitively back in the 80s, I didn't know any of this shit at all. I did everything you can do wrong from the execution of the movement patterns, knowing absolutely nothing about the mechanics of them, to the programming programming of the things, uh, to lifting into wrong, in the wrong body weight class. I didn't know anything. I was a complete idiot. I'm not genetically gifted for this. I got to a 633 squat, 622 squat, a 396 bench, and a six. 33 deadlift doing everything wrong. I think I'd probably have been quite a bit stronger had I done things more correctly, but I didn't have the principles outlined in either starting strength or practical programming to help me when I was doing my lifting. You have the benefit of all the mistakes that I made and all of the work I did in hindsight, developing the details of the method that you have in those two books. Uh, The lesser of the evils of other existing programs uh, were the ones I was using back then. You know, you kind of generally had an idea that you need to go up over a 12-week period, need to go from high volume to, to high intensity. So I managed to get that all done, but it was probably premature. For example, I never went through 
what you would call the novice linear progression. I didn't know. I developed that much later. And as a result, had I gone through the novice linear progression into the high volume, lower intensity, lower volume, higher intensity programs I used for getting ready for meat preparation, I would have started out at a much higher baseline to enter that 12-week tapering cycle that I have used, that I used at the time for meads. And it would have worked a hell of a lot better. Uh, so the lesser of evils is basically all of the other silly bullshit that's out there. Our method works better. Absolutely it does. It works better than anybody else's for getting ready for a meet. So, Ryan Bailey asks, I am a high school strength coach. I've been using the starting strength model for four years. What advice would you give for teaching and working with large groups up to 30 kids? Ryan, man, I don't know. I have no advice for you. I've never done that. I've uh, worked with some people who have done that. Uh, our friend John Janicek made a living doing that in high schools for a long time and was very successful at it. Uh, we've got lots of other coaches associated with our program that have worked this concept into large groups of kids. I personally don't know how to do it, so I'm not the guy to ask. But if you really want some help with this, I'd get a hold of Janicek. He's in Euless, uh, Bedford area at Janicek Strength. You can look him up online. Get to him through our website. Sean Berry's down in South Texas in, uh, oh, fuck, Beeville or someplace down there. Where's Berry live? Somewhere in South Texas. Someplace hot. Someplace down there. And uh, he's been doing this for a long time. A lot of our people have been doing work with large groups for a long period of time. It's just that I'm not one of them, and I don't know. You'll have to ask the the experts on that because that's outside my area of expertise. Tennessee Travis asks, you think that's really some guy's name? Tennessee Travis. Guy's name is is Travis, and he's from Tennessee, so he likes the alliteration. I was recently, somewhat to my surprise, diagnosed with low testosterone. Absurdly low, in fact. Furthermore, due to my tendency to also produce too many platelets in my blood, I am not a good candidate for any kind of testosterone replacement therapy. I am prepared and fully intend to continue training anyway, as I am weak and need to be strong no matter what challenges that presents. Remember that statement. Do you have any other specific recommendations for someone in my predicament other than to eat well, sleep well, and do all of the other natural things that I can control anyway to naturally increase this vital hormone? Okay, so Travis, your thinking is fuzzy here, all right? If testosterone replacement therapy is not an option. In other words, a higher level of testosterone is not an option because you have some platelet disorder. All right. Why would naturally increasing this vital hormone also be an option? In either event, the testosterone is higher. If higher is bad, why is naturally increasing it okay but not supplementing it, but supplementing it, not okay. You see my problem with your question? I'm kind of stumped here. I don't understand what what the nature of the problem is because I don't think you're thinking clearly. Do you want your testosterone up or not? If you want it up, get therapy replacement. TRT brings your testosterone up. They have There's ways to do this under a tightly controlled situation so that it doesn't get too high. Uh, Some guys just take a bunch of testosterone, but you obviously can't do that. But if you are convinced that having a higher testosterone level would help, then get it up, right? 
and it'll go up and you'll be able to titrate it up gradually and control the process. But don't operate under the delusion that a naturally high testosterone level won't have the same effect on your platelet disorder if you were actually able to get it up with Andro 400 or some of this other bullshit that's sold on talk radio advertisements. Uh, either way, an elevated testosterone, if it's bad for your platelet things, are contraindicated. I don't know that they are, though. I don't know that an elevated testosterone level actually has an adverse effect on your platelet disorder. Uh, if I were you and I was operating only on the thing my doctor told me, I would, uh, you know, trust but verify. You remember that old concept? Who came up with that? Khrushchev? I think Khrushchev said that. Or was that Stalin? Gorbachev said that. Reagan gets credit for the concept, but I believe somebody told me that trust but verify was a function of the gentleman known as the Russian proverb. Russian proverb. Some guy named Russian proverb came up. Trust but verify. So uh, don't just blindly swallow anything your doctor tells you. Uh, buddy of mine called me yesterday and told me that he'd gone in for a prostate exam. Uh, he, he told, and he's seeing, he's seeing the urologists, uh, PA or nurse practitioner or whatever. And, and so she does a digital rectal exam a hard prostate massage on him. He tells her that he's ejaculated within 24 hours, right? And she said, well, what difference does that make? She's all puzzled. She's, she's like offended that he would tell her, uh, you're in the urology office, that a, a urological function had been performed. She's, she's offended by this. And then 30 minutes later, she takes, she draws blood for PSA. And the PSA is like 4.21. And so she's going to recommend a biopsy. Now, look, you can't fuck up a urology visit much more than that. You know, there's, there's just hardly any way to be more wrong than this broad was. And we laughed about that. He was real pissed off about it. I don't blame him. I just thought, God almighty. So trust but verify, right? Okay, that's Travis, Tennessee Travis's thing here. Let's see. That's the first page down. I thought I had another page. Oh, I do. Okay. Astro Boy says, if you had to choose between cutting your sleep or your weight lifting, which would you cut, reduce first, and why? Uh, depends on how old I was. Uh, if I was 18, I'd cut sleep because an 18-year-old can recover. If I was me, I'd probably cut training before I cut sleep because as you age, Sleep becomes a much more precious commodity and much harder to get, much more, uh, has much more bearing on your recovery than it did when you were younger. A young man can just beat himself to death physically in the absence of sleep and get away with it. Old men can't do that. And uh, things are different when you're older. Things are different when you're older. Volume of your training must go down when you're older. You have to allow for more recovery time when you're older. Sleep is much more important to recovery than any other factor you have. And old guys don't sleep good because aches and pains wake them up all night. So, uh, as is the case with most questions, the answer is it depends. Okay? Now, Dora asks, what is the dumbest thing that you've seen someone do in a general gym 
or the stupidity abyss of the YouTube and Instagram fitness world. Okay. Here, here's the problem, Dor. I haven't been in a general commercial gym in a long, 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 long time. I'm only in mine. I'm only in other people's gyms that do things the way we do. I don't have any observations about stuff like that from gyms, and I do not look at that kind of shit on the Internet because if I'm on the Internet, I'm doing research for shit I'm trying to write about. I'm looking at uh, uh, the news, or I'm watching porn. I don't have time to look. I don't consider, uh, uh, you know, people dropping barbells on their feet uh, a source of entertainment on the Internet. I've got, you know, Gianna Michaels for that. So uh, the dumbest thing that I generally run across in, in relation to these kinds of things are the antics of uh, Division One strength and conditioning coaches. Uh, I see funny, funny things all the time. Somebody sent me an article uh, last week from, uh, oh, of, you know, the reliable source of, of sports bullshit, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated is far worse than the Washington Post in their bias about everything they do. It is, it, they are, it is a clown show, all right? And this uh, article was, it appeared on April 16th, and somebody just got it to me last week. The title of the article is, What It's Like to Work Out with Oregon Strength Coach Aaron Feld. Now, if you look this up on the internet, there is some video with it. Isn't that right, Nick? And the video is, uh, you know, the standard playing of games in the in the weight room. This particular game, he's got bands on and he's jumping up in the air with bands. In one shot, the bands are helping pull him up. In the other shot, the bands are holding him down on the floor. All of this in lieu of getting the kid's deadlift up to 505. All right. And I looked at this article, and I I think what I'm just going to do is read uh, the top of it for you and see exactly what I'm talking about. This article is written by some Sports Illustrated journalist by the name of Andy Staples. This man's a journalist. He works for Sports Illustrated. He writes for Sports Illustrated. Eugene, Oregon. Aaron Feld is trying to be nice while still making a point. You're strong enough, the Oregon strength coach says to a journalist about being able to do some silly-ass trick that he wants him to do in the weight room that doesn't make you strong either. You're strong enough, he said. Uh, What else do you need to know? (laughs) Stupid shit. So, uh, I think if you're looking for stupid shit on the internet, you look at D1 weight rooms. Pro weight rooms. They are full of entertaining things that highly paid athletes are being forced to do. All right. Thomas asks, what's your primary carry gun and caliber? Well, Thomas, I carry... A large revolver. Uh, I have uh, 40 caliber Glocks in all my vehicles. They're locked. You can't steal them. And if you do steal them, I'll just replace them. They're cheap guns. But I've got a 40 caliber Glock in all my vehicles, but my carry gun that I carry with me is a large revolver. It is a, it's a Ruger Super Red Hawk in 44 mag. Now, why do I carry that? Because I use the gun up 
at the cabin, which is at 9,300 feet, where there are bears. It's my sidearm up there. When there are bears and when I'm outside working, I just have it with me. I'm not going to have to shoot a bear with it, but uh, if I did have to shoot a bear with it, I would only want to have to shoot the bear a couple of times before he started chewing on my ass, all right? And that's what I have that big caliber revolver for. And I carry the same one with me. I just put it in my bag, and I carry it with me. Now, it is is primarily for convenience and primarily for the for the purpose of not having to shoot anybody more times than is necessary to make them stop doing that. You know, stop doing the thing that that made me afraid for my life and having to shoot somebody. I don't want to have to shoot anybody, but I, by the same token, I really don't want to have to shoot anybody 15 times. That's kind of hard to explain to the grand jury. So that's my reasoning on that gun and the caliber. Now, do you have an opinion on what constitutes a healthy body fat percentage? What would you consider to be the top and bottom limits of a healthy range? Oh, I don't know. Anonymous, I don't like ranges because people are individuals and someone who is perfectly capable of carrying 25% body fat uh, at the top uh, might be different from somebody who's only capable of carrying, you know, 23% at the top. Uh, A healthy body fat percentage... And this also depends on the sport. Uh, if you're a climber, you don't need any extra weight, any body weight. You ought to have a low body fat percentage if you're a climber. If you're a gymnast, you probably want a low body fat percentage. If you play in the NFL, you'd rather have your body fat higher because you'll bruise less easily with a higher body fat percentage. Uh, if you're... Uh, well, bodybuilders aren't athletes, but if you if you if there's something about your performance that requires a lower body weight, then a lower body fat percentage is going to be the most efficient way to attain the lower body fat, and that becomes an aspect of your training. If you are just interested in training for strength and just to generally walk around stronger, I'm not really terribly concerned about your body fat percentage if it's below, you know, thirty percent. 30% body fat's kind of fat. But is it fatal? No, it's not. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, and if you enjoy eating and drinking, and it's an important part of your life, and you don't want to be on a diet all the time and have to watch everything you eat, and you're walking around at 30% body fat, yeah, you probably need to drop a little body fat, but it's not critical to your health. Uh, on the other hand, if your body fat is 4%, uh, you're, you may look wonderful on the internet, but that's not a healthy body fat percentage. Uh, humans are not healthy at 4% body fat. Humans are in a state of privation at 4%. That's, that's starvation. That's what happens at the end of a long famine. Okay, that's not good for you. That kind of wasting is accompanied by not a hell of a lot of lean body mass also. So I think the range would probably be somewhere, you know, a desirable range is somewhere between 25 and, and 15%. And, uh, of course, you're going to have a different opinion to that, and you're going to start typing right now and say, oh, Rip, he was doing fat. He said normal was 15%. I'm down at 11%, and I'm trying to go lower. You ever notice how the YouTube comments always say they disagree with something I've said, and then the next word they type is I? Interesting pattern, isn't it? So there you have that. What are the best dogs to have at a gym? Quiet dogs. Are the best dogs to have at a gym? Quiet, friendly dogs. I like big dogs, but you can have a little dog at the gym if he's quiet and friendly. What you don't want is a noisy, pain-in-the-ass terrier at your gym. Nobody's amused by that after about 10 minutes. 
So get a quiet dog. Uh, let's see. Aaron says, hi, Rip. Throughout the starting strength method of programming, deadlifts have very little volume and always generally high intensity. If five sets of five on volume day drives progress for the bench, press, and squat, what drives progress for the deadlift? Five more pounds drives progress for the deadlift, just like it does on the other lifts too. Progress is driven by five more pounds, not by a bunch of meaningless ass, light, weight, junk reps in the eight to 10 range. Uh, this is, this is fashionable to lift light weights at high volume and say you're doing hypertrophy. The only problem with that is, is anybody that nobody that does that is actually big. So it didn't really work, did it? Okay. Now here's another training related question. Once you've reached, this is Commodore Matt Decker. You'll recognize that name. Commodore Decker says, once you've reached certain strength thresholds that put you in the top 1% of the population, for example, one and a half times body weight bench, two times body weight squat, two and a half times deadlift. Strength is no longer the most important physical attribute. According to Commodore Matt Decker. Commodore Matt Decker says that speed, endurance, flexibility, and balance are then more important. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong because you're Commodore Matt Decker. Now, you might be wrong because not everybody sees it that way, Commodore. Some people think that strength is more important than speed, endurance, flexibility, and balance. Now, let me point something out. At any given standing vertical jump, say you got a 24-inch standing vertical jump, very average standing vertical jump, and you take this kid with a 24-inch standing vertical jump from a 135-pound squat to a 315 squat. He's going to get faster, especially if you get his deadlift up to 365. He's going to get faster. He is. I know this. I've watched it happen lots of times. He gets faster when he gets stronger. All right? His endurance goes up. Same kid's endurance goes up. This is taking his squat from... 135 to 315, and his and deadlift from 185 to 365. His endurance goes up because each submaximal rep becomes less hard becomes because it's more submaximal, right? His flexibility is not a factor in any of this because he's flexible enough to do all of his, all of his sports performance uh, range of motions, and all of the range of motion he uses in his strength training. So flexibility is uh, a red herring, as it's called. And balance uh, is, well, did he fall down when he squatted the 315? Did he fall down when he deadlifted 365? His balance is good if he didn't do that, because you can fall down when you squat, and you can fall down when you deadlift. But he didn't do that, so his balance is just fine, too. All right, your numbers, your ratios here, one and a half times body weight on the bench, twice body weight squat. For a 150-pound kid, 155-pound kid, a twice body weight squat is 315. That's not particularly strong. Two and a half times body weight deadlift is not particularly strong. Uh, for a heavier guy, those numbers are headed up in the direction of stronger, but these are not astonishing strength numbers, especially not for somebody with a, who is a gifted athlete, someone that is explosive, someone with a big standing vertical jump. 
And they may decide that they want to get stronger. And if that's okay with you, Commodore, I think I'll go ahead and let them. Uh, why you're wrong is because you don't, you're wrong because you don't understand the relationship between speed, endurance, flexibility, balance, and strength. That's why you're wrong. Dave asks, hey, Rip, I'm not a veteran, but I'm very interested in the theory of making soldiers stronger for all of the reasons you hit upon. You also addressed many issues with the program, including testing out, but you didn't talk about the highly individual design of strength training. To elaborate, a young female non-athlete and a male football player will have very different starting weights for all lifts and different LP. As it is right now, one instructor can make 20-plus soldiers run, but the ratio will need to be much lower for strength training. Not to, I assume he's talking about the instructor-to-soldier ratio. Not to mention the time to teach each person the proper technique to minimize injury while LPing. I'd like to hear more. Thanks. Well, Dave, you're you're looking at the same problems uh, that we talked about earlier with uh, coaching for a team. Coaching a group of people, a large group of people, any large group of people in, in strength training uh, is always going to be dependent on the instructor's ability to adjust the program for individual strength levels. Everybody responds to a linear progression, gradual, incrementally increased loading on the basic exercises in exactly the same way. They all get stronger. They just start from different baseline strength levels. So the untrained female, the first day in the weight room, she will probably squat somewhere between 45 and 65 pounds. And the football player, the young male football player, may squat 275. We accomplish this range of loading with weight, with plates that are adjustable on the bar. Barbells are adjustable, almost infinitely adjustable because we have very, very light bars too. And a properly equipped weight room will be, will be able to deal with any situation it finds itself in, in terms of the strength or weakness of the athlete being trained. But you have to know how to teach the movement pattern and you have to have the judgment in order to adequately address the different strength levels you'll find amongst the people you're coaching. This, this requires experience on the part of the coach. And I never said this process could just be turned on with the flip of a switch. Uh, if the military adopts this kind of a, a, a strength training protocol, it's going to have to make some preparations in terms of the, the teaching of its personnel. Instructors have to be trained too. They have to know what the hell they're looking for. They have to know how to solve a lot of problems. Uh, as far as uh, whether or not this will work, it works on football teams that uh, that apply this methodology to their to their kids. Why would it not work in basic training? I see no reason that any of these problems are insurmountable. And I see lots and lots and lots of reasons why they should be addressed and why this program, a program of strength training at basic training instead of running, should be implemented immediately. It's, uh, it's better for the service people. It's better for our armed forces. It produces a higher state of readiness. And it just makes for a better bunch of people in the service all the way around. Oh, this ought to, this will make a good last one. Jack says, I've just got out of varicocele surgery. Look it up. The doctor told me I should never squat again or the varicocele will return. Any advice? Love the podcast. Well, uh, Jack, I've already mentioned, trust but verify. That should be your watchword. How many doctors have 
failed to tell somebody never squat again. All right, that's just what doctors say. That's when you get your when you become a doctor, you you're taught to say there, there's probably some meeting you have in an office somewhere where this is. All right, doctor, you're a doctor now. I want you to repeat the following words with me. Never squat again. Never lift more than 20 pounds. Say this over and over. I have no doubt that happens. And in your case, the same thing is true. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'd take that with a large grain of salt trust. But verify, thank you, people, for joining us again on Starting Strength Radio. We will see you next time. Thank you.